Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church this morning as we explore the Apostle Peter's account of Palm Sunday. So the title of the message is, When God Meets with Man, Peter's Account of Palm Sunday. When God Meets with Man, Peter's Account of Palm Sunday. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25. If you're a guest here this morning, let me explain to you why it has the title that it has. We're looking at Peter's account of Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to look at Peter's account of Resurrection Sunday. Now, you're asking yourself, why Peter? Why Peter? The reason that we're taking Peter's account is because we as a church are currently studying Peter's letter, 1 Peter, written in about 65 AD to a bunch of suffering Christians in modern-day Turkey. They're Christians right now in modern-day Turkey. They're suffering. Turkey's right on the border with Syria. There are Christians in Syria who are being beheaded. And so over 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to suffering Christians. And the words he gave to those suffering Christians are every bit as valid and helpful to us today in the 21st century as suffering Christians, right? And in that letter, one of the main themes Peter advances in 65 AD... He learned that theme from Jesus and he wrote about it 10 years earlier in about 52 AD. So stay with me. The Apostle Peter, who was the pastor of the Church of Rome. Most of us know that very well from our past religious affiliations. But Peter was the pastor of the Church in Rome. So in 52 AD, Peter is with this guy named Mark. And Peter narrates to Mark His memory, his eyewitness account of Jesus' life in 33, his his life probably from 30 to 33 AD. That's called the Gospel of Mark. That was written in 52 AD. You with me? So we're going to study Peter's account of Jesus on Palm Sunday and Peter's account of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. Why? Because Peter, 10 years later, in 65 AD, still the pastor of the church in Rome, probably about two or three years away away from being martyred, writes a letter to a bunch of suffering Christians in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, some 1,500 miles away. And one of the main themes in that letter is that God is building a spiritual house, not a physical one, with living stones to offer spiritual sacrifices that are made acceptable to God by the blood of Jesus. So you have to ask yourself a question. Where in the world did Peter get that? Ten years earlier, he wrote about it. We're going to read about it today. He got it from what he remembers Jesus did and said on this day, Palm Sunday. You got you staying with me? So the main two questions that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, dictated, the the account that Peter dictated to Mark that he wrote down for us, the main two questions that drive this narrative are found on the screen. And I want you to have these questions in your head before we read the text. Where does God meet with his people? And what happens when God's people meet with God? Listen, if you were here last Sunday, this is exactly what we talked about last Sunday, right? God meets with his people in a spiritual house that God built. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is uh, the, the foundation, the cornerstone. And then God calls us to be living stones that he fits together into the spiritual house. 
And then in that spiritual house, we go from being living stones, according to the text we preached last week in 1 Peter 2, we then become high priests or a holy priesthood and we offer sacrifices to God and we talked about what those were. If you haven't um, had a chance to listen to that message, listen to it. This week, we're going we're gonna to find out basically where Peter got all those ideas from, okay? And so these two questions are right at the forefront. You got the questions? You got the scripture? You ready? Here it is. Chin chilling, spine tingling. This is the stuff, man. This is great stuff. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they, the they here are Peter, Jesus, the apostles. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others leafy spread leafy branches, palms, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Well, Peter certainly did, because he's narrating this to Mark. Remember, Peter's writing this in 52 AD. It probably occurred in 33 AD, some nine years earlier, 19 years earlier. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Remember that. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the what? Temple. I want you to see how many times temple is mentioned in this narrative here. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house, which is synonymous with temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, remember the fig tree? They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And who remembered? Peter. Of course he would. And Peter remembered and said to him, 
Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever, wherever, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your sins. Peter begins his passion narrative on Holy Week, the first day of Holy Week, focusing in on the temple. Why? Because Jesus focused in on the temple. Why? Because the point Jesus made in 33 AD that Peter noted to Mark in 52 AD that he wrote to the suffering Christians in 65 AD about is this. It's the same message that comes today. Jesus came to fulfill all that the temple was intended to be. Jesus came to fulfill all that the temple was intended to be. Jesus is the new temple. And he came in this narrative to curse the old temple. Because the old temple had failed in its purpose. And that's what drives this text. That's what drives this narrative. The spiritual house of God is built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and we are the living stones. Point one, where God meets with his people. Where God meets with his people. Peter picks up the narrative in verse one with Jesus passing through Bethany, some two miles outside of Jerusalem and reaching the Mount of Olives. On the screen, you should see a map. And you can see on that map, to the right, see where it says Bethphage? Right underneath it there, right above it, it says Mount of Olives. So Bethany is about two miles away. So they're walking, and they get to the Mount of Olives, and it kind of overlooks Jerusalem. And it's from there that, that Peter picks up the narrative in verse 1. And, and it's interesting. Peter's description of what happens here is very simple, it's very powerful, and it's very political. Listen, Peter is describing things in, in absolutely uh, politically charged language. You've got to remember that Rome was in charge and, and ruling over Israel at the time. And he's calling Jesus one who's going to bring, look at verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus is going to bring the kingdom of David. In other words, Jesus, they're hoping Jesus is the one who throws the Romans out and reestablishes a Jewish kingdom very politically charged but peter also narrates it in a lot of mystery i mean there's all kinds of stuff they're going to go to this house and basically steal a colt they don't steal it but they untie it and start walking away and the guy who's the owner says hey where are you going with my colt says the master says i have need to it he says okay it's like one of those jedi you don't need this colt you know (laughs) i don't need this colt and but there's no jedi trick here this is god almighty who spoke and yeah The guy didn't plan to donate his cult that day for the king of kings to ride in on, but that was God's plan, so there you go. But there's mystery here. It's like, is Jesus Messiah? Is he the son of David, that king that's going to rule and throw the Romans out? Who is he? There's this, there's a symbol of a cult who, who was used in the Old Testament to, to symbolize a king riding into Jerusalem. What's going on here? As a matter of fact, in verse 11, Peter delivers us to a very inauspicious ending to this first dramatic day of Holy Week. Look at verse 11. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out of Bethany with the twelve. 
So it basically ends with Jesus getting there, you know, looks around, says, all right, let's go home. I mean, with all of this fanfare and all the stuff and the crowds, it's almost like a muted place. But here's why, guys. What God wanted to do, what Peter is trying to do, both here and there and today, is to say, this is the place, the temple, where God used to meet with his people, and the new temple, who's taking over, says, okay, I've seen it, yep, tomorrow we're going to continue to do business here, let's go home. God is going to replace and fulfill the temple with Jesus, the true temple, and that's why Peter really hones in on what happened the next day. Because beginning in verse 12, Peter's narration of Palm Sunday actually includes the next day. And he gives us a very detailed account of a parable, a story that Jesus told using real life props. Poor fig tree. Uh, And that little story, this, this Jesus cursing the fig tree starts in verse 12. Look at your text. Goes down to verse 14, and then, and then Peter's narration interrupts the parable, and he picks the parable back up in verse 20 to the end of the chapter. And in between that parable of the cursed fig tree, Peter inserts Jesus going into the temple and basically throwing everybody out because they were all a bunch of crooks. Why? Why did, P- why did God inspire Peter to narrate it that way to Mark in 52 AD and to write about what he wrote about to the suffering Christians in 65 AD and it comes to us today? Why? Because God wants us to know that the new temple is Jesus Christ. So look at verse 12. Let's get into a Middle Eastern mindset in the first century AD. All right, slip your toga on and let's go. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. We still got the map up there? Yep. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So what we see here is that the next morning, Jesus wakes up and he's hungry. He's hungry. First of all, Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. Then he walks over to a fig tree, though according to verse 13b, it was not the season for figs, and not seeing any figs, he curses it. Well, immediately all of us are saying the same thing, right? Wait a second, that's not fair. I mean, if it's not the season for figs, why is he cursing a fig tree that has no figs? That's that's wrong, right? Well, not really. If we get into the first century mentality, let me explain it to you. In Israel, figs matured around late summertime. You'd pick the beautiful fig, you'd eat it, it'd be nice and tasty. Right after they matured and they picked those figs, little sprouts would jump out onto that tree. They would lie dormant throughout the wintertime. And then right about this time, March, April time frame, those little sprouts would kind of become like green, hard, small figs. They call them pagim. In fact, I got a picture for you right up here. And so these pagim would be there around this time of year, March, April. Now, these pagim were not good to eat. They were like eating a hard mango or, you know, just something that's, uh, it's just, it's not that tasty, but they were nutritious. And actually, the locals would often eat them. Now, right before, right before the pagim would come out in March, April, the trees would give leaves. 
So all during the winter, there's no leaves on the tree. There's little tiny buds. Then around March, April, as spring hits, leaves come out. And what do the leaves tell you? I got some pagim there. That's a little go-to. 7-Eleven is closed. I can always grab a couple of pagim on my way to Jerusalem. And so, so when Jesus walked up to that tree, what did he expect? He saw leaves from a distance, but it's hard to see those if you're at a great distance. All you see is a bunch of green. He saw leaves at a distance. What did he expect that those leaves would tell him? There's going to be pagim on there. And he was hungry. And when he got to the tree, there was no pagim. And he cursed the tree. Here's the point. Jesus says, you see that temple? If you can go back to the picture of the temple, the depiction of the temple, not the temple court. No, the the first one. The the temple. It should be a picture of the temple. No, it's earlier. When he saw the temple, this beautiful temple, right? And he saw all those leaves. And in the Holy of Holies is where God meets with man. But you know what he's saying? When you go into that place, there's no fruit. They're a bunch of hypocrites. The, the, that temple tells me this is where God meets with man and man meets with God, but it's not happening. You walk up and you, you part the leaves and there's no pagim. And Jesus says, I curse you. And what he's saying is not just to the fig tree, it's a picture of what's going to happen to the temple. And, and, and what, and he, inter, by the way, he interrupts the parable. You notice in verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then in verse 15, Peter, it's kind of like a teaser, right? Like you listen to sports radio, you know, and they say, you know, next I tell you the brand new first round draft pick from the Dolphins and you won't believe it. And then they go to commercial break. Of course, what are they doing? They're, they're getting you to stay through the commercial break so that you can hear that who is the first round pick, which it doesn't matter anyways, right? Anyways, uh, <laughs> commentary on the Dolphins there. Um, so, so Peter's saying, he cursed the tree. And you're like, well, what happened? Well, let me tell you what happened on his way in for the rest of that day. He goes into the temple, and verses 15 to 19, Jesus enters the fruitless temple, and he begins to literally clean house. You see where it says drove out there in the text where it says he drove out in verse 15, began to drive out those who sold uh, temples. That Greek phrase uh, is used elsewhere for exercising or expelling demons. I mean, this is some serious stuff. He's going to town here, right? I mean, he's, tables are being overthrown. People are being grabbed on the scruff of the neck. A boot is being put into the seat of the pants. He's not angry and he's not sinning. And in case you think you can do that, you can, okay? Because you're not Jesus. Uh, but but he, he's not very, he is cleaning house. And you ask yourself, why is he cleaning house? And look at verse 17. Jesus tells you why. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's the leaves. Now you can show the temple mount. So you've got this beautiful temple mount, which is, yeah, and this is huge. It's probably 35 acres, that, that area around the actual temple. That's called the Temple Mount area. That, it's called the Court of the Gentiles. All right? And that area was filled with people selling things. It's Passover, which is coming up in April of this year. And for a Jew, every good Jew tried to make it to Jerusalem three times a year for the three major feasts. Passover is one of those major feasts. 
And so when they come to Jerusalem, they come with sacrifices. They have to buy sacrifices. Josephus, a historian of that time, said that on Passover, on the Passover weekend, a conservative evaluation is that over 230,000 lambs were slaughtered that weekend. Can you, so you had to buy them. And so they would set up tables in there. If you were poor, you would buy a pigeon, which is the, 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 uh, what is mentioned here in this text. Well, here's how, here's how the tree had leaves but no fruit. The leaders of Israel, instead of being a place where people could see that God meets with his people and his people worship God, a place of prayer, they had turned it into an incredible money-making opportunity. Imagine your city swells to two or three times its numbers and they're all here for a celebration and you've got the one thing they need to do that celebration. It's like having water during Hurricane Andrew or ice and monopolizing. And you know what they did? They began to charge five and six times what it normally cost. It normally cost 25 cents in today's currency to buy a pigeon or two pigeons. But during Passover, they were selling two pigeons for $4. They were ripping people off. And because Jews came from all over the Roman Empire, many of them brought foreign currency. So they were exchanging foreign currency. So I'm going to rip you off on the two pigeons. And when I exchange the foreign currency, I'm going to take a 30% cut on the exchange rate. And they were doing it in the temple, which was prohibited to do. They were getting rich at the expense of the people. And here's Jesus' point. He says, listen, that place is where I intended to meet with you, and I wanted you to meet with me to pray for the nations. And the nations who are walking around there, you know what they're walking around seeing? They're not seeing God meet with these people. They're seeing God's, God's, the leaders of God's people ripping off their own people. They're getting slammed. They're getting conned. And they walk away and go, these, these Jews, these Christians, they talk a good game. There's a bunch of leaves here. It's a pretty building. It was beautiful when I was looking at it from a distance, but when I got in there, there's no fruit. We're just all getting ripped off. And Jesus said, enough. He said, enough. I will not permit it. One commentator said this, Jesus suddenly became a bouncer. He grabbed them by the scruff of the neck, kicked them in the seat of the pants, overturned their tables, and knocked them from their perches. When the time comes for his crucifixion, which will be at the end of the week, Jesus will permit them to lay hands on him and carry him off. But not now. Not today. That's meekness, isn't it? Jesus knew his purpose, and the purpose today was to execute judgment on the temple that, it's, that had lost its purpose. Jesus quotes in verse 17, Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain, should be on the screen, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. You see, Jesus came to say, this, that's the purpose for this house. In fact, some Jews actually thought that Messiah would come to cleanse the temple of Gentiles, put the temple mount back up. Jesus says, no, my purpose for Israel is to place my people and my presence in the middle and let it shine brightly as a light and a place where I meet with my people and they meet with me. And then I'm inviting the the Gentiles to come to the court of the Gentiles to see and be converted He actually cleansed the temple of the rotten leaders and people ripping off his own people so to make room for the Gentiles. 
And church, that is the point here. Jesus is the foundation of the new spiritual house, and we are that house as living stones. We are those people. The temple is no longer one place in Jerusalem. That's what the Jews thought. But by 65 AD, Christians and even Jewish Christians living in modern-day Turkey, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, thought, here we are in an out-of-the-way place. There's nothing happening. Our church is so small. We meet in the dark corner somewhere. Who are we? We're being persecuted. And Peter says, no, you are the people of God. You are the living stones. He is the cornerstone. And that building is every bit as glorious and more so than the building in Jerusalem. Why? Because the people of God is no longer a physical temple. As Danny Aiken says in his commentary on the screen, God once had a physical temple located in Jerusalem. He now has a perfect temple located in heaven. Amen. That temple is Jesus, as he himself said in John 2, 18 to 22. He now has a spiritual temple, which is the church. He now has a personal temple scattered all around the world as a witness that he is indeed a savior for all nations. Yes, he is. That temple is anyone who recognizes that they are not their own, for they were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ, our Passover. We're that house, church. We're going to go back to this theme after Easter. And we come with spiritual sacrifices. And that leads us to point two. What happens when God's people meet with God? Point two, what happens when God's people meet with God? Well, I can tell you right now, three things primarily happen when God's people meet with God. They believe, they pray, and they forgive. They believe, they pray, and they forgive. Look with me now at verse 20. In verse 20 of Mark 11, Peter's coming back to narrating that parable. Look at verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. As we said, the withered fig tree represents Israel and the temple, which had become hypocritical, promising fruit but offering none. By the way, may we remember as a church that we could slip into that as well, right? We could. We could. God, help us from that. And in verse 22, Jesus teaches the disciples that he alone is the place where we believe and we can offer to God these sacrifices that are pleasing to him by his blood alone. We meet with God in Christ, not in some physical building, but in Christ Jesus. And in verse 23... Where Jesus, where he talks about this mountain, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea. The idea there is a mountain. It's a hyperbole, friends. It represents what appears to be impossible, immovable, beyond our finite ability. This is where faith begins. Believing faith is in Christ. What's the mountain that Jesus moves? And what's the mountain that is moved by faith in Christ and Christ alone by the Spirit of God? It's the mountain of the inaccessibility of God by man. It is the mountain of your sin and my sin that separates us from God. That is impossible. But Jesus makes it possible. By faith. When God's people meet with God, they believe. But they also pray. They also pray, look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe 
that you have received it and it will be yours. Oh, friends, when we meet together, we pray. We pray believing that we'll receive not based on our righteousness, but on Christ, not based on anything I can do, but on what Christ has done. I have faith to pray when I meet together with you. I pray privately, but we pray corporately. Prayer goes on. And then the final one, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, right? So I I come to the house of God, who is Christ, the foundation. We're the living stones, the church. The Spirit gives me life, and I believe. What was impossible is now possible. I can have a relationship with God because of what Christ has done. And then I pray, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, but suddenly I realize how annoying the person next to me is. I'm praying, oh God, I love you so much. And it's metaphorical, okay? (laughs) We get into conflicts with one another, right? Not just here, people in the world. And what am I tempted to do? I'm tempted to get angry and bitter and judgmental and self-righteous and hypocritical. I'm tempted to gossip and slander and run them down and then they run me down. And the world is walking around our spiritual house like those Gentiles were. And they may not see people ripping people off, selling them pigeons, but they see a bunch of people who claim to know the God who forgives their sins, not forgiving one another's sins. Acting like harsh people to one another. And they look and the light is dimmed. I forgive. I forgive because Jesus did the impossible. Go back up to that mountain. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, verse 23, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe. I cannot move a mountain. I cannot forgive my own sins. I cannot have a relationship with the Holy God and I know it and I know I'm in big trouble but Jesus made the impossible possible. And because he forgave me as his people, I forgive others. Remember the temple. Remember what what God said through David and Solomon. He says, when you sin, build me a house. And when you sin, in that house, I will forgive your sin. I will give you life. Jesus is that house. So as members of that house, as living stones of that house, how can we say we're part of the house of forgiveness when we refuse to forgive? And so he comes and he tells us here gently, forgive. Corey talked about it when he preached from 1 Peter uh, 2.1 at the end of it, love one another. We're going to keep talking about it in the next couple of weeks after Easter when we re-engage this letter. Because in God's house, when God's people meet with God, They believe, they pray, and they forgive. Listen, here's the takeaway, friends. We we meet with God here at Palm Vista. Doesn't matter what it physically looks like. Has nothing to do with the building. We meet in Christ Jesus. He's the one who's changed our lives. We are transformed corporately, individually, into the image of Christ. And then we go out and we shine brightly to this nation around us, this city around us. The appeal is this on the screen. Jesus came to prepare the one and only place where God meets with his people. Let us enter that place by the blood of Jesus and meet with God. Listen, guys, as Jesus intercedes for us, let us stand interceding for one another, even those who have offended us. 
As Jesus prays for us, let our lives be, as it were, a prayer for others, a service of others. Whatever it is you do, wherever it is you work, whatever you put your hands to, determine, I'm going to be a light reflecting my Savior. Because it's a spiritual house. You don't just do it on Sundays or at community group. We're the church. He's in you and me. And you get to represent him as you believe, as you pray, and as you forgive. Let us experience that transformation, friends, as we meet with our God today in Christ. Let us pray and worship team, would you please join me up front? Lord, I pray in the name of your Son, upon whom you built your house, your temple, Jesus Christ. The doorway, the access we have to you, the one who came and took my sins on the cross when I deserved to be rejected, he was rejected. When I deserved to receive your wrath, Jesus received it for me. And I come in Jesus' name, and and what I pray for, Lord, is that we would be a church that would burn brightly with the light of your gospel, that we would be a place that would have not only leaves, but fruit. A place where people could come and see God, you meeting with your people, and your people meeting with you. A place where where your people believe, Lord. Well, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. When suffering comes, help us when we, we question you. When we want to quit. When the wind's in our face, week after week, month after month, we're riding our bikes, and the wind is always against us, and we're like, ah. Give us more faith. Lord, when when we're tempted to to self-sufficiency and hence don't pray, give us a heart of prayer, humble obedience. And oh God, when we've been wronged or even we think we've been wronged or offended or or mocked or whatever, overlooked, give us the grace to forgive. What hypocrites we would be having been forgiven 14 billion dollars an unpayable debt we wouldn't forgive our brother or sister who owes us a couple of thousand it's the parable you give us in matthew 18 lord give us the grace to to believe and to pray and to forgive i pray this in jesus name amen let's let's stand up and let's sing arise my soul arise